Hey, we're starting a new series. Um, it's called Hide and Seek, and you've probably seen the promo stuff on it. And if you are astute, you've watched and seen that when it says hide, it's not spelled the way you and I would normally spell hide. It's spelled hide the same way as kind of the Jekyll and Hyde. And the reason we're doing that is because we're starting a series today on the life of David. And what we're going to discover with the life of David is that his life is very much like a heartbeat. That there are moments when David is just flat on. He's serving God. He's making the right decisions. He refuses to compromise. In a moment when everybody else runs, he stands. And when David is on, boy, David is on. But David's got the other side, the hide side of his life. And when David is off, David is off. He commits adultery. He murders He loses the respect of his own children. His own children say of David, I wouldn't follow you to the corner store. And so suddenly we look at this remarkable life and say, wow, what a difference. What a difference that even small decisions make in the life of a man. And and, and when he's on, he's writing the largest book that we have in the Bible. Now, if you knew this or not, David wrote the book of Psalms. Largest book in the entire... David wrote that book. As David serves as king, Scripture says he was a man after God's own heart, and he is considered the best king that Israel ever had. Every king after David is measured by David. And and as you read Scripture, it would say, and he was a king like David. Or it would say, boy, he was a king nothing like David. He became the standard. And when David was on, David was amazing. And when David was off, he was disastrous. Some of you that were here last week heard me tell a story about my youth pastor, Wayne. And about a moment in my life when Wayne stood, told me the things that I needed to hear, took a young man who was angry, mad at God, and literally stood in the gap for me. And my life was changed because of Wayne. And I'm going to tell you that my youth pastor, Wayne, was an amazing, amazing, amazing guy. When he was on for God... We had kids who would come to our youth group who didn't even know Jesus yet just to hang out with Wayne. He was just that remarkable and you wanted the guy to be your buddy and just incredible guy. Wayne took a couple knocks in his life and figured out that there was actually hypocrites at church. Figured that out yet? Had some people say some things and do some things that weren't fair in his life and he finally just said, I'm done. I'm done with God. I'm done with church. And he went out. My youth pastor went out and literally shook his fist at God and said, I'm going to do anything I can to break your heart. And literally for the next few years, you wouldn't imagine the stuff that Wayne did. It culminated in his life being involved in homosexuality. He actually became a homosexual prostitute. I ended up speaking at Wayne's funeral. When he died of AIDS. And I'm just going to tell you one of the strangest funerals that I've ever been a part of. Because there was 200 of us who sat in the room and said, this man, when he was on, was amazing. There's 200 of us whose lives are forever changed. We look at our spiritual journey and mark meeting Wayne as the thing that turned us around. But just as uncomfortable and just as strange was the 200 people who weren't at the funeral, who, if they had been, would have said, this man was devastation in my life. 
this man was wound and hurt and disappointment in my life. Because when Wayne was on, Wayne was on. And when Wayne was off. See, I'm hoping that as we do this series, that there are moments when we watch David and see how he lives for God and those moments that he does well and that you and I are inspired and we go, I could do that. I could live that way. And that you and I would aspire to life like that. But I'm hoping just as equally as we do this sermon series that you'll be terrified. That you'll look at moments in David's life that begin with small compromise. Little moments lived the wrong way. And watch as that spirals in his life and those moments when David's off. And your heart and my heart would say, Boy, I've got every potential for that. Because the truth is... I'm a little bit like David. And when my life is on, when I'm serving God, when I'm doing what I know, I can be amazing. And when I'm off, when selfishness creeps in and when it becomes my agenda and when I tell God to sit back and watch and I'll decide, it's ugly. And I have every potential to hurt and I have all that it takes to disappoint. Because the truth is, there's a little bit of David in all of us. Let's have a word of prayer and we're just going to ask God to teach us, be with us through this series. Dearest Heavenly Father, we, we come before you. And God, we've, we've all met Davids. We've all met Christians who, boy, when they served you, were amazing to watch. And when they got off track, hurt and hurt and hurt other people. And God, if we were honest today, there's a little bit of David in every one of us. And so, God, I'm just going to ask that in this series that first that you, we would have moments where we would look at Scripture and say, oh, my, maybe that's what God's been asking. Maybe if I were to really bow the knee and maybe if I was really to take my Christian life to a new level, maybe I could be like David. And then, God, that there would be those moments in which we watch David stumble. We watch moments of seemingly insignificant and small compromise that spirals out of control in this guy's life. And we would say with absolute terror in our hearts. I could do that. I could do that. Because God, the truth is, there's a little bit of David in all of us. God, change us over the course of this series. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, you can't start a sermon series on the life of David and not tell the story. You know which one I'm talking about. It's the one where his, you know, we first hear about him. You first get to know this guy. And, of course, it's that story of David and Goliath. The problem is, you realize, we've told that story wrong. For forever, 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 we've told that story as David goes out, meets the battle, goes and takes those five stones, hurdles the first one, bam, nails Goliath. And in the telling of that story, we go, wow, that's remarkable. What a great guy. And he trusted God and... But I could never be that guy. I mean, look at this opportunity. I mean, David gets to get this really big giant. What a lucky guy, man. I don't have any giants in my life. What an opportunity. And then we think to ourselves, and he is incredibly blessed because he apparently has blind faith. He has this ability to just trust God and believe God for anything. And the problem is, I'm a realist. And I, oof, I I can't do that. And I don't know if I'd want to do that. And then you go, and 
this guy's just full of dumb luck. I mean, what are the chances? One little stone, you know, hitting that guy. And, and the way we tell the story, we all walk away and go, that's a fascinating, great story. But so I get to go work at Intel now. And you and I believe that about the story because we told the story wrong. Now, here's what you need to know. That when Hebrews first told this story, their Bible didn't have chapters. So they never began in this story where you and I begin. They actually began what you and I would call a chapter earlier at the beginning of the story. And when you and I don't, we miss the whole point. So today, we're going to go back and start at the beginning. So grab your Bibles this morning. Go with me to the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel is going to be in the front of your Bible. If you're not real familiar, 1 Samuel is an Old Testament book. David's life happens during the Old Testament period, so we're going to spend most of this series there. 1 Samuel, chapter 16. Go to the front, work to the right. Let me give you some setup as you're turning to this place. Saul is the king of Israel. Saul has been an absolutely miserable king. On every given opportunity to do something right, Saul has blown it. And finally, God gets to a point with Saul that he says, I'm done. I am so worn out with you, Saul. Not only are you not going to be king anymore, but I don't want anybody in your family to ever be king. We're just going to remove the whole lineage from kingness. And so he then takes, God does, the prophet Samuel and says to the prophet, we're going to go find a new king, a new house, a new family to be the royal family within Israel. And I'm going to send you to go do that. And there's a guy by the name of Jesse. We're going to pick one of his sons. And when you and I come to 1 Samuel chapter 16, that's what's happening. This is the first moment in David's life that you and I have recorded. 1 Samuel chapter 16, go with me to verse 6. Here's what it says. And when they arrived, Samuel, the prophet of God, saw Eliab and thought... Now, Eliab is David's oldest brother. Big, 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 big brother. Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands before me. So he looks at this big, huge guy, burly, kind of a man's man looking guy. He's got straight teeth. What more could you ask for? And he says, Hey, this has got to be God's anointed. This has got to be the man. Verse 7, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look on outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And right now, you and I get our first clue in the story in which God's going to say, hey, it's not about how far you go up the corporate ladder. It's not whether or not you drive the right car or wear the right clothes or look the right way. Because that's the way society is always going to measure you. And God says, no, 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 no. That's what the whole point of this story is we're going to talk about a young man who nobody thought much about. And he becomes a giant killer. Verse 8. Then Jesse called Abinab, the second brother, and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse had Sema pass before Samuel, and he said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked, are there, are there any other sons that you have? 
Now, how bad is that moment when someone has to ask your dad, Got any other kids? To which Jesse then goes, Well, there's this one. Verse 11, so we asked Jesse, are these all the sons you've got? There is still this, the youngest, Jesse answered, but he's out tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent and had him brought in. He was ruddy with fine appearance and handsome features. And then the Lord says, rise and anoint him. He's the one. Now guys, here's what you got to get. And here's what the premise of the story of David is set in. It's David. It's the the 16-year-old kid that even his own family, when told, we're going to pick a king out of your family, didn't even think to have him walk in front. That that when they got done, they said, well, I don't know what's going to happen. And Samuel has to say, got any more kids? And his own father... This is what his his own father has to say. Well, there's this one. And all of a sudden, you and I are left to ask, how does he, how does David, the shepherd, end up being David, the giant slayer? What is it about this young man that nobody else saw, that nobody else understood, that everybody overlooked? And had no idea that he possessed. What is it about David that God saw and everybody else missed? And guys, here's why that question is huge. Because there's a little bit of David in every one of us. And some of us are sitting here today. And the crowd hasn't noticed. And you and I have been overlooked. And we've thought, you know what? My lot in life is to to just survive in, in obscurity and to just kind of mark time. And the story of David is meant to come back and say to your heart and my heart, no way, no way, no way. Because there's a little bit of David in all of us. And I don't care if no one's noticed. I don't care if no one has seen. God has seen. Now the story of David, chapter 17. We're going to read through this story. Here's what I want you to do. Look for the moments. Look for the subtle things within the story that tell you what this young man possessed that nobody else around him held. No one else has what he has. What is it that makes him different? Chapter 17. Now the Philistines had gathered forces for war and assembled at Sukkah in Judah. They pitched camp in Ephesus, Demum, near Sukkah and Azekah. Try and say that five times really fast. That's why we don't read our Bibles, right? All those verses. So you can just mumble them when you read it and keep going. Okay, here we go. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with a valley in between. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. Modern translation, 125 pounds. He has a small person strapped to his chest. 
okay? He's a big boy. On his legs he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, a small beam for a spear. And the iron point weighed 600 shekels. Modern translation, 15 pounds. The tip of this guy's spear is a bowling ball. I mean, we're talking big guy. His shield bearer went on before him. Now, here's what's happening in here. This guy, this guy is big. And you don't want to underestimate, you don't want to miss that moment. And so just to help you, we, we got some cutouts here. Okay, now this, this, is the, this is the size of Shaquille O'Neal, which I'm hearing he lost some weight this year and got down to 340. Okay? And I'm just thinking, here's the deal. This guy comes walking at me in a dark alley. I'm going the other way. Shaquille is nothing. Goliath. Is a big boy. And, and here, here's, what you, here's what you got to get. That's the small version. Here's why. When scripture describes how tall Goliath was, it says he was six cubits, which is actually an inaccurate form of measurement. And a cubit is actually the measurement from the tip of someone's finger down to the crease in their arm. And different people are different sizes. And so Bible scholars, as they translated, wanting to be conservative took the smallest measurement. This is the shortest Goliath potentially was, as we tell the story. Back to the passage. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. Now, You just need to know this was completely common in the day. Two armies would get together and fight. And as they got ready to fight, they would would do that whole Braveheart thing. You know, you line up on one side, you line up on the other side. You say really mean things to each other. Like, your mom wears combat boots. Your sister's so ugly. You know, that's what you do. And then when you get mad enough, you go running down in the middle and you fight. Now that's happening every day. Scripture tells us for 40 days. Except here's what happened every day. In the middle of fighting, everybody's... This guy comes walking out. This tree of a man comes walking onto the field. And all the Israelites see him. They go, ha! Like little girls. And they run. (laughs) Finally, Goliath steps out and says, Oh, here's how we'll solve this. Choose a champion. There's no need for us all to die. And, and again, this was common, and, and armies would do this all the time because they'd say, look, 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 if we battle each other, then a bunch of us are going to end up dead. So let's choose a champion from each side. Whoever wins, wins the battle, and at least you get to go home alive. Now, you may end up being our servants, we may end up being yours, but you're alive. Good plan. So Goliath proposes that plan. He says, okay, here's the deal. Send out your champion, I'll fight him. 
To which the Israelites are going, yeah, we'd rather take our chances in battle. Verse 9, if he is able to fight and to kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, this day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. No doubt. No doubt. Here's where the story turns. Look at the next phrase. Now, David. You remember David. The guy that everybody overlooked. The guy that his own family looked at and didn't see any potential in. You remember that the young kid who's keeping the sheep. That David is about to do something remarkable. Now David, the son of an Ephraite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time, he, Jesse, was old and well advanced in years. And Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war. The firstborn was Eliab, the second Abinab, and the third Shema. David was the youngest, and the three eldest followed Saul. Jump with me to verse 17. Now Jesse said to his son David... Take this ephah of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to the camp. Take along these ten cheeses to the commander of the unit. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. Early in the morning, David left the flock with a shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out into its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines, facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of the supplies, ran to the battle lines, and greeted his brothers. And as he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines, shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. He get the scene. Forty days, we all yell about each other's mother, say all sorts of bad things, run down and fight. Goliath comes out, we all run, and David comes at just that moment. When the Israelites saw the man, they all ran from him in great fear. Now the Israelites have been saying, do you see this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of God? And right there, right there, you and I get our first hint. Because here's what you need to know. David had already made up his mind before he ever got to the battle. But he was going to stand for God. Think about this. What if Goliath had been nine foot seven instead of nine foot six? Do you think that would have stopped David? You think David would have gone, oh, sorry guys, there's a height requirement for giants. 
You know, I, I, I go all the way up to the 9-6 version. 9-7, you kind of passed my limit. You know, God could have handled 9-6. But 9-7. See, you, you read that and you know, Goliath could have been 10 foot tall. And he might have been. And David's answer was still going to be the same. Who is this man that he should defy the armies of God? Here's why. Because David already has the answer. And here's his answer. I'm going to serve God. And I don't care how big the giants are. Now guys, that's a total change. Because here's why. Most of us live our lives not with the answer, but with the question. Here's what we do. We go through life and we say, hmm, I wonder what's going to happen. I wonder what opportunity is going to come my way. I wonder what problem is going to sneak into my life. And when it does, then I'm going to have to figure out what I'm going to do when it does. Because you and I are living life from the question, which is why. I'm sitting there as a single young gal and all of a sudden he walks in the room and he doesn't love my Jesus and he doesn't get it, but he looks like Justin Timberlake. And all of a sudden I'm having to go, hmm, I wonder what I should do. Maybe if I took him to church enough. It's why when the deal comes my way and, and, it involves a little bit of corner rounding and just a couple lies and, and just, just a little bit of compromise. And suddenly you and I are left to go, wow, I've got to figure this out. Do you realize how many zeros are attached to this? Wow, what do I do? What do I do? Because we're living our lives from the question. It's why when we get in the midst of marriage and it turns out harder than we thought. And suddenly we're saying, hmm, I know what I promised. I know what I said, but this isn't what I expected. I've got to, I've got to figure out what I'm going to do next. It's because you're living your life from the question. David lives his life from the answer. And if you were to meet David, he would say this to you. My answer is this. I'm going to serve God. Now, what's the question? I'm going to serve God. So who's this person you want me to date? I'm going to serve God. So could you tell me again the details on this business opportunity? I'm going to serve God. So I already know what I'm going to do with my marriage. Because he lives it from the answer, not the question. Some of you guys have been around here a while and you know that we had kind of a movie starish. Judge Reinhold came and gave his testimony a couple years back. Neat, neat, neat guy. Neat Christian testimony. But I love in his testimony not what he did, but what someone else did. He, he's on a movie set. He's kind of like one of the stars in this movie. And as he's going through the movie and they're doing the filming, he happens to notice on the set a young lady who is just vibrant and alive and just sparkles and amazing. And he goes, I've got to meet this girl. She's, she's incredible. So she, he goes over to ask her for a date. She turns him down. The star turns him down. He keeps kind of chasing, pursuing, 
Finally, she agrees to go to lunch with him. And in the story, you think, oh, okay, here it is. This is the moment. This is where compromise shows up. This is where she has to kind of go, oh, you know, I know Judge isn't a believer, but he's the star. They get to lunch. And before the waiter can take the order, you ready for what she says? She says, Judge, Judge, look, I, I just need to say something right at the beginning. I can't date you. You see, I'm a Christian. And I love Jesus with all of my heart. And I just cannot imagine spending my life with someone who doesn't love Jesus as much as me. So we can't date. To which judge says, What? You know what that young lady knew? The answer. The answer, before anybody asked the question, before the movie star asked her out, before she was asked to bend her standards. She knew the answer. I'm going to serve God. Now, who's asking me out? Let me just ask. You live in your life from the question? Going through life and waiting to see what life brings you, and then as it comes, you go, wow, I, I don't know, and how would I serve God, and should I, and wow, that would be, wow. You live in life from the question? Or you live in life from the answer that says, I will serve God. Now, what's your question? It's a big change, isn't it? Back to the passage. Verse 27. They repeated to David what they had been saying and told him, this is what will be done for the man who kills him. When Eliab, David's older brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger and he asked, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the desert? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is and that you came only here to watch the battle. I mean, think about this moment. You're David. You're the youngest of eight brothers. And now your oldest brother, big brother, is looking at you and going, you little pipsqueak. Come on. And I I know how conceited your heart is. You know, you're going to sit around and act like some big man. You're a shepherd. Get back home. Have you ever been criticized? You ever had someone just laugh at you for what you believed about God? Because here's the deal. When you watch David in the next few verses, this this just goes untouched. (laughs) Everything his brother says doesn't change anything. Because David is fully, fully, fully prepared to be misunderstood and to be laughed at and to be criticized. Matter of fact, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, Jesus said this, The servant is not greater than the master. They persecuted me. They will persecute you and laugh and not understand and ask you if you took your head off. You're one of them? One of those Bible thumpers? Oh, no, 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 no. The wife makes me go. Timothy says, Everyone who desires to live a godly life will be persecuted. Matter of fact, one of the most amazing stories in Scripture is the story of Peter 
sharing the gospel, telling people about Jesus Christ. And the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of the day, hears about it, is not happy. They bring Peter in and the other disciples and they say to them, Hey, look, you stop preaching in the name of Jesus. You stop it right now. To which Peter says, I can't because this is what Jesus told me to do. And so they decide to kill him. And then a guy in the room named Gamal stands up and says, Look, 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 guys, what if these guys are with God? And then we kill them. That wouldn't be good. I've got a different plan. Let's just beat them up really bad. And all the guys are going, oh, what a great plan. So they pull out whips and they whip Peter and the other disciples. And as Peter and the other disciples walk away, the Bible says, and they rejoiced that they had been counted worthy to suffer for Jesus. So, did any suffering recently? Anybody give me a hard time for your faith? Because you know, most of us are perfectly content to be secret agent Christians. Right? <laughs> Boy, we're going to get to heaven and all our friends are going to be surprised. You're a, really? Didn't know. Secret agent Christian. Yeah. Had a guy come up to me after church a while back. And he said to me, he said, Lenny, I'm so close to making a decision for Jesus. And I said, well, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you make that decision? What's holding you back? Kept expecting to hear like some scientific struggle or some. He said, my family. I said, what do you mean? He says, well, I was raised totally different than this. And if I make a decision for Jesus, my family's not going to. They're going to believe I betrayed them that I've walked away from everything they taught me, they're, they're going to they're be mad. And I had to look him in the eye and say, I wish I could make this easy for you, but I can't. Because you know what the answer is? When you finally decide for Jesus, your family's going to think you betrayed them and that you walked away and that you forsake everything that they taught you. But here's what Jesus said. Jesus said, Unless a man or a woman be willing to walk away from his mother and his father, his sister and his brother, he's not worthy of the kingdom of heaven. And here's the answer, guys. You and I have got to be willing to say, I am. I am. I'm one of them. I am a follower of Jesus Christ. Now here's, I'm not asking you to go out of here and be an obnoxious Christian. I'm not asking you to do that. So don't leave here today and go find some corner and stand on it and scream at cars. Don't do that. Because if they start screaming back at you or doing one finger salutes, then I'm just telling you, you're getting what you deserve. Okay? Because that's not standing up for Jesus. That's, that's just dumb. Okay? And I'm just telling you, Jesus didn't stand on the side of the trail yelling at donkeys that passed by. He didn't do it. Okay? That's not what it means. It just means this. I am. I am. I'm one of them. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. That's what it means. And I guarantee you there'll be a boss who misunderstands. There'll be a family member who laughs. There'll be a neighbor who goes, not hanging out at their house. And Jesus said, that's what it means to follow me. Verse 29. Now what have I done, David says to his brother, can't I even speak? 
Saul hears that David has been talking about going out and fighting this giant. Verse 33. Saul meets David. Saul replied, You are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a boy, and he has been a fighting man from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. Now, is that a reference on a resume or what? Hey, don't worry about me. I can kill that giant. I'm a sheep keeper. Make me president. I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine? Sheep keeper. Wow. Wow. That puts you right at the top of the list, David. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and carried off the sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. And when it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. Next verse. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. You get what David just did? He's going, no, 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 no. It's not my reference. It's God's. See, there's this God who saved me from the lion and saved me from the bear. That's the guy who's going to go do battle with me. When you read the Old Testament, every time God shows up in the life of the Israelites, they do something really strange. They pile rocks. So as you walked across Israel, you'd walk along and all of a sudden you'd just see this big heap of rocks. And you'd go... which was exactly what you were supposed to do because their intent in their heart was this, that as moms and dads walked along the trail with their sons and daughters, that their children would come to the pile of rocks and say, hey, mom, 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 dad, what's the pile of rocks about? And mom and dad would stop in the moment and say, oh, no, no, no. That's the spot. That's the spot where the children of Israel were camped on the Red Sea and the armies of the Egyptians came upon them and God parted the Red Sea and right where that pile of rocks is is where we crossed on dry ground. And the rocks were monuments. They were monuments of their faith. Every time God showed up, they piled the rocks. David comes to this moment and says, Oh, no, 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 I'm okay. I'm okay because i got monuments. See, I've got this lion and I got this bear who showed up in my life. And when I was in trouble and when everything was coming apart and when there was no way I could make it, God showed up. And this guy's going to be like one of them. Because the same God who delivered me will deliver me again. It's a monumental faith. Let me just ask you a question. Got any rock piles in your life? Got any moments where you can go back and take a friend and go, no, 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 look, right there, right there. That's where God showed up. That's where I should have been beat. That's where my life should have fell apart. That's when everything came loose. And then God. Got any rock piles? Got any monuments in your faith? We were getting ready to start this church. Some of you have heard our humble beginnings. Ten years ago when we were starting, we were a couple people meeting in a clubhouse. Wow. And we were having to raise support like missionaries, which is code for beg for money. And uh, 
as we went out and asked people to support us in money, I mean, the money was not there, was not there, was not there, was not there. And we sat in a meeting, three families who'd all come to start this church, and said, what's the least we could possibly, possibly, possibly survive on in Chandler, Arizona, and still feed our kids? And you know what we came up with? 24000 24,000 Chandler, Arizona. No benefits, none. 24, if we could get to, we, we would survive. They go, what's that about, Lynn? Go back 20 years to a young man growing up in a house in Tempe, Arizona, which used to be what Chandler is today. And all the young families are moving there, and they just bought a brand new house, and then dad took off. And in a mom who worked two jobs to keep that house for that family. And that there, there were nights in which, for dinner, we had French toast. Not because French toast was cool, but because the only thing in the cupboard was some bread and some eggs. And, and if that bear wasn't enough, add to the family dynamic a baby sister who's autistic. Back before anybody knows what autism is. And a mother who works two jobs and has to drive her every morning to schooling and gets back at home at 8 o'clock. We were the definition of latchkey kids. And I'm telling you, if you had been to one of the neighbors of the Winters kids, you would have said, no hope, no hope, no hope. That, that house on the corner is trouble waiting to happen. Now fast forward to a meeting. And in that moment, I looked back at the rest of the guys and said, no, no, here, here's the thing, guys. God has already delivered me from the bear and the lion. And as long as we're in doing what God wants us to do, we're okay with 24,000. Let's go plant a church. So I'm just asking. Got any rocks? Got any monuments to your faith? That when it's all coming apart, you go back and go, no, no, there's God. You guys know the rest of the story. You know how a 16-year-old young man walks out onto a battlefield and knocks down a guy that he had no business knocking down. But here's what you also know now. The battle was won before he ever stepped foot on the field because of who David was. And you want to hear the cool part? There's a little bit of David in all of us. It's about our heads. I'm just going to ask real quick this morning with your head bowed and your eyes closed, and I just want you and God to do a moment right now. Are you living your life from the question or from the answer? See, are you going through life saying, okay, I need to figure out what life throws at me and what issues come and what opportunities I get and who wants to date me, and then I'll decide what I'm going to do. Then I'll figure out if I'm going to serve God or do something else. Are you living life from the question? Can I just challenge you this morning to live life from the answer? To say and decide in your heart, I will, I will, I will serve God. Now, what's the question? What's the opportunity? What's what's you wanted to talk to me about? Because the answer is I will serve God. Some of us in this room, and, and, and you've been quiet about your faith, and you've kept it under the rug because you're afraid what your neighbor would say or your coworker or how your boss would take it. 
And I'm, I'm here today to just tell you, you might lose a job. You, you might end up with someone you respect laughing at you. It's what happens to those who live large for Jesus and stand bold. It's part of the territory. It shouldn't surprise you at all. Got any rocks in your life? Got any monuments where God has showed up and that you can take friends and family to and say, no, 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 no. There is no giant that we can't handle. Because you see, I've already slayed the lion and the bear. I've already been there. And God's already shown up. See, I've got a monument of faith in my Jesus. Hey, guys. There's a little bit of David in all of us. If you'll let it happen. Dear Heavenly Father, we are. We're, we're the ones that nobody thought and, and even our own family never considered. And, and we even began to believe maybe I'm just here taking up some space. And God, this morning our hearts have come alive. There's a voice inside that says there's, there's a little bit of David in here. And if you could simply believe if you could simply make up your mind before the question was asked that you had the answer. If you could simply say, I am, I am, I am, I'm one of them. If you could simply remember all the things God has already done, there'd be no giant big enough to scare you. There's a little bit of David in there. There's only Father. Let us live like David. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're here today and you're content in your heart to be the overlooked, to blend in with the crowd, this didn't make sense. But if you're here today, your heart might be saying,